0: Hi, everyone. You are now listening to BCC Sermons. Thanks for tuning in. I wanted to get us started before we get into the message with some exciting things that we like to share with you every now and then give you some updates of some cool things that God is doing here at BCC. You know that we always say we wanna focus on connecting, growing and serving and so we wanna help you see how we as a church family are accomplishing that by saying yes to greater things and by our obedience to Jesus Christ. And so over these past three months, we have had five new members here at BCC. We've had 43 uh, people join our serve team And we've had three baptisms, so let's just thank God for those things. I just think that that's wonderful. And we've been seeing, um, not that it's all about the numbers by any stretch, but we've been seeing those types of numbers just consistently grow throughout the year, and so we believe that God is definitely on the move, doing some special things here in our church family and among us and throughout these Quad Cities and literally all over the world through a church in Bettendorf, Iowa. So praise God for that. Amen. Well, we're going to get into the Word this morning. Today, we're going to wrap up our series that we've been in for the past 12 weeks. What? That's right. 12 weeks. We've been going through this series that we've called Multiply. And a lot of you have been in small groups that you've been taking this just a little further in your study. The purpose of this series is to help equip us to be not only faithful disciples, but to be faithful disciple makers. Because it's one thing for us to hear the Word of God taught every week or in small group or in your own personal Bible study and get to this crossroads of inspiration, right? It's always wonderful to get to a place of inspiration and I love when people feel moved to do something and they feel excited to do something and I love when we feel feelings and the Lord moves in our midst and moves on our hearts but the next step is crucial because it's not enough to just be inspired or to seek inspiration after inspiration after inspiration the point and the purpose of the inspiration is to lead us to a place of obedience And that's the crossroads that we find ourselves with when we're confronted with the word of God and God illuminates truth to us as disciple makers because every one of us who name the name of Jesus, every one of us who have submitted our lives to Christ and have given him our faith and our trust and and have put our hope in him, every one of us are called not only to just be disciples but to be disciple makers. The two go hand in hand. Jesus said this in this great commission that he gave us. He said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey. Teach them to do the things that I've been sharing with you. Teach them. So that wasn't just given to a small group of people on that day. That is the great commission for every believer. Amen? We have to start there if we're going to have a true grasp of what discipleship really means. So we've been going through a thorough equipping over the past 12 weeks to be able to better understand scripture, to properly handle the Bible, to be able to have a good understanding of what is most important in the eyes of God, to have a healthy grasp of what this concept of the church means, both locally and globally. And now we're going to wrap up today by talking about how to understand the New Testament. And my hope and my purpose in teaching this today is I hope this results in our church understanding the scripture they read or if you're a person who maybe has not regularly been in the Bible, maybe a win for you would be that you crack open that Bible and you actually begin to read the word of God and you begin to learn more about him and how to serve him and learn more of his heart for you and for me and his purpose. So I want us to gain confidence in being people who are called to be not only disciples, but disciple makers. So let's ask God to help us with that. Heavenly Father, we submit all of our ideas and our thoughts and our preconceived ideas, our experience, all of those things, Lord, we submit to you because God, each one of us bring those things to the table this morning. Every one of us bring our own different perspectives and experiences throughout our lifetime. And Father, we submit those things before you and we ask that your Holy Spirit and your word would define and redefine and renew our minds to be able to line up with what you say is true, with what you say is right, so that we can serve you and we can be faithful, so we can be about the Father's business of leading others to Jesus and making disciples as we ourselves are growing in this process of sanctification and we're growing as disciples ourselves. Help us do this by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we talked about understanding the Old Testament And a lot of those principles are true of the New Testament. And the challenge for me this week in my sermon preparation and my study was not just replacing the word old with new and preaching the same sermon I did last week. So as I began to dive into the New Testament, there's some observations that bring a pretty good contrast in between the two that I think will help us because as we approach the scripture, our mindset towards the scripture is very, very important oftentimes we immediately jump into the scripture and we look for ourselves or what's the bible say to me and what's all of this mean to me but first for us to healthy uh have a healthy approach and put it in healthy context we have to understand what it meant to the people who had first heard it or first read it or were first experiencing it and this is going to help us do that so i want to help us with that the old testament is comprised of 39 books and it took over a thousand years to write all of those different things. And so in a period of a thousand years, a lot of things can change and a lot of culture can change. A lot of things can shift. You're going to have drastic shifts in culture. So you can't apply the same understanding and culture uh, in that same context. I mean, there are things in that thousand year period that were invented that they didn't have, you know, when you read perhaps things that they used in Genesis. I mean, there's been technological advances. There's been different social advances. There's been different empires ruling with different concepts and with different understandings. You have the Egyptians who take the Hebrews into captivity and bring them into slavery. You have uh, throughout the history, the Babylonians coming in, you know, and now they're leading with a different philosophy, a different mentality, a different mindset. So we can't think that over a period of a thousand years that everyone just under understood everything the same way. There are different periods of history, different cultural nuances within that. And so during the time of reading the Old Testament, man, there's a big span of culture and a lot can change in a thousand years. Think about how much has changed in the United States of America. And we're just a little over 300 years old, right, as a country. And so here we are as a a nation and how much has changed in the U.S. in just 300 years, so imagine this, this Old Testament being compiled over 1,000 years, and how much must have changed in the lifetime of those people that experienced that that we read about. So it's not like they all had the same cultural understanding. But here's the difference between the Old and the New. The 27 books of the New Testament only took 40 years to write. And so during 40 years, sure, a lot can change in 40 years in a time span in history, but it's not going to be as drastic as a thousand year change. So as you read the New Testament, you can take a lot of the same approaches to the New Testament throughout the whole thing as you're reading it. And so I want us to understand that, that the New Testament authors were all first generation Jesus followers. These people were all first-generation Christians, first-generation Jesus followers. The New Testament is made up of the Gospels, or, which are primarily biographical and historical. They're made up of the Acts of the Apostles, which is historical narrative. And it's made up of the epistles or letters of the apostles, which is letters to groups or individuals. And then the book of Revelation is apocalyptic or prophetic in nature. And so all of these different literary styles were all written in this 40-year time. The New Testament was written culturally at the intersection between Hellenism and Roman imperialism. And so this is what was happening at the world. The, world, the, the known world of the New Testament was very, very much... Greek. And it was very much Greek in thought. And it was very influential. As a matter of fact, a lot of those Greek systems from that period still influence our society and our culture today. Our education system, heavily influenced by Greek. Our medical system, heavily influenced by this time period. This was a very, very significant time in human history. And so this also intersected with this idea of Roman imperialism. So the Romans were trying to conquer the known world, and they would come and camp out in your space and thus your culture. They were interjecting themselves and their culture in your culture. And so the whole known world was being transformed by Greek thought, Greek architecture. Uh, It was Greek education, culture, religion, and other customs, either by choice or by force, but oftentimes by force. The Romans would overtake an area by military force, and here's what they would do. They would take a group captive and force them into slavery, and then those that were left behind that were not in slavery, they would impose heavy taxes on the remaining population, and the whole purpose was to line the pockets of Rome and to help to further this agenda and also to keep the people under control and to maintain this idea of control. The Roman emperor could be voted by the Senate and deified as a vicar of God or God himself, So the Roman emperor could be voted by the Senate. They would choose to elevate him to a deity status, to where he would be worshipped, thus the rise of imperial cult worship. Octavius, or Caesar Augustus, he took the throne after his famous father Julius Caesar. You remember Julius Caesar was actually killed in in a coup by the senators. But after he was killed, there were a bunch of civil wars and civil unrest that happened. And 11 years later, actually, the Senate voted to deify Julius Caesar so he would be worshiped as a god. So as you're reading the New Testament and they're talking about these leaders, they're not just talking about like the president of the United States. They're talking about this person as a god. This is how those who were under that influence and under that rule would have treated him. And Octavius or Caesar Augustus, which we read about in the story of Jesus, he was called, get this, the son of God because Julius Caesar was his father. It was even on the coin of their day where it was printed in Greek, the son of God. So the contrast of having Jesus Christ, the son of the one true living God, And having Caesar Augustus, the son of Julius Caesar, also being touted as the son of God, when people would call Jesus the son of God or he would refer to himself as the son of man, it offended both Jew and Greek. It's just making everybody mad because it's heresy to the Jewish people because they're thinking, how could this man from Nazareth, this is Joseph, the carpenter's son, How could this man make these types of statements or do these types of things? And how could people be making claims about him this way? But then the Greeks are going, no, Julius Caesar's son, Augustus, he is the son of God. And everybody's mad at Jesus. This is the temperature of the New Testament. This is what's going on. You see religion was intermingled with the politics of their day very tightly because religions would go through rites and rituals in order to gain favor and power and provision from the gods. And so these guys were doing the religious rites and rituals. And when you hear the word religion in the scripture, what it's really referring to is all of the rites and rituals that they would go through to get favor because they wanted to be more powerful. They wanted to be protected. They wanted to be whatever, you know, they're looking for influence they're looking for favor and so they would go through all these rites and rituals thinking they're appeasing and pleasing the gods so they can gain favor to be able to advance their agenda or the agenda of caesar thus them thinking they're doing the will of god this is what's happening during the day of the new testament this is the cultural climate of jesus and the days of the early church in which the new testament was written and all of these things i'm not just trying to give you a history lesson and just trying to help us to understand all these things are clues, and they help us better understand what was happening in the lives of the people that we read about. So when we read the Bible, this becomes alive to us, because before we can ask, what does the text mean to us? We must first ask, what did it first mean to them? The original intended here. And I know we've driven this home over and over throughout this series, but I wanted to say it one more time. I'll never say it again. No, that's not true. I'll say it again at some point. We have to ask what does it mean to them because the Holy Spirit inspired the original author and also inspired the original intent of that author. And so the Holy Spirit is not going to be flighty. Now, our application may be able to be looked at differently to where there may be several applications that we can apply in our lives and in our context when we read it and learn about God, but the original intended meaning cannot change. Because the Holy Spirit is not uh, schizophrenic. Um, The Holy Spirit is not going to be wishy-washy just to ebb and flow with the change in the culture of time. Because if that were the case, then it's that sinking sand. It's that shifting sand that's going to change all the time. And then the word of God can mean anything. It can mean anything. If the Holy Spirit can just make it mean whatever and the Holy Spirit's cha- constantly changing the meetings, meanings, then who's to say who has the right understanding? The Holy Spirit inspired the original intent. We must anchor the text in our study of Scripture with the original intended meaning. So ground your interpretation of Scripture in that. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus just finished his famous Sermon on the Mount and he wants to summarize this whole idea. And he wants us to understand what's actually going on and how we need to approach the words that he has just spoken. And not just those words in that particular sermon, but any words that Jesus would share because he is the living word of God. And here's what he said in Matthew chapter seven and verse 24, Matthew seven and 24, Jesus says, everyone then, Jesus, here in this context, he is comparing the kingdom of God's values that he just taught to the shifting system and practices of their day. Because remember, a lot of the content of the sermon that Jesus just got through sharing was talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven values this. This is important in the eyes of God. This is what the kingdom looks like. Jesus is showing all of humanity in this moment what God values, what's important to him. Even the things that we thought were important, he would say, you think this is important, but here's what God thinks is important. You think it's this way, but God actually looks at it this way. And so he was trying to illustrate the heart of God through all of these different teachings that he gave and these different illustrations that he gave. And then he wraps it up by saying, now, if you hear what I'm saying and you actually put it into practice and you do it, that's going to be as if you built a house on a solid foundation. And then when a storm comes and tries to pull you away from that or tries to destroy that the house is gonna be able to stand. But if you don't hear it and you don't do it, then it's gonna be like building your house upon the shifting sand, because then at that point, you're building your house upon something that is changing, like the culture of the day or what the political powers of the day would say are important or what the system of the day would say we should prioritize. And folks, let me tell you, there's a system out there that would wanna tell us what's important, right? And it changes. It changes with people who are in positions of political power. It changes with celebrities in our day and age. I mean, different people follow different trends and different ideas based off of who's sharing the idea. And the ideas change and it's so crazy because even in the lifetime of certain prominent influential people in our society, you can go back 20, maybe even 10 years and look at things they said back then and they're saying something different now than they were saying back then. And there's people that are just going, whatever you say, whatever you say. Whatever you say. And they're just following them around because this person is important, or they sold a lot of books, or they have a lot of money, or they have a lot of power, or they have a lot of fame, and people just follow them around. And they're not thinking because they're listening or getting excited and riled up about something and following someone's agenda and not even asking, is this the solid rock or is this shifting sand? And Jesus was saying, listen, I want my people to stay steady. And if you want to follow me, then you're going to have to build your life upon the things I'm saying. Because the things I'm saying aren't going to shift when stuff comes against it. It's going to stay steady and stay strong. And so Jesus wants his people to be grounded in his word and in his truth. Because that's where we find our identity. That's where we find our hope. That's where we have our faith built. That's where we're able to grow in our effectiveness. Amen? Amen. That's what he's called us to do. This statement here, I believe, set the tone for the rest of the New Testament. Because it was such a strong statement, if you think about it in the context of the day. Because Jesus was calling the existing kingdom, the kingdom of Caesar, the existing ideas. He was calling that shifting sand. And he was publicly calling it out. And saying, you can either trust in this idea of a kingdom, or you can follow their idea of a kingdom. And you have to decide. You have to make a choice. He said, are you going to hear and obey, or are you going to hear and ignore? And this is what Jesus was trying to communicate. And it set the tone, because Jesus, from that point on, he began to teach that religion was not in rites and rituals to gain favor from God. That's not how you got favor from God. It was actually by faith. And he was teaching them this idea of faith over and over again. The way Jesus taught and the early church taught were so revolutionary and countercultural because it was separate from the dominant culture of the day. It was separate from the politics of the day and the religious rhythms of the day. It wasn't like Jesus was saying, here's how we get someone to be able to overtake the Roman uh, government system so that we can change things through the government our way. No, Instead, Jesus was saying, here's how you live amongst the people and who you disagree. And when you read the New Testament and you read Peter, he talks about living under Roman oppression. And he says, here's how you do it in order to please God. And so what he did was attractive to so many people because it was so different. It wasn't grounded in rituals and rites. It was grounded in love and sacrifice and community and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and living peaceably with everyone, even those people we disagree with. And it dismantled this hierarchy, this system of the day that made some people great and and made some people uh, not so great in the scum of society. Instead, Jesus flips it on its head and he says, actually, the first is gonna be last and the last is gonna be first. And we just read that and we go, that's kind. No, this was evolutionary. Jesus isn't just writing stuff to stuff in a fortune cookie 2,000 years later. Jesus isn't just saying something that's going to be quoted casually. No, this was weighty stuff, you guys. He's basically speaking to the system of the day. And he's saying, I'm showing you a better way. And that was not the common way that had been accepted. It wasn't the way that had been known. It wasn't anchored in love. It wasn't anchored in community. It wasn't anchored in, in, in walking in love and in unity, even with those you disagree. No, no, no. It was either you're with me or you're against me. So get out of my way if you're against me. And Jesus was showing a different way. And man, people were having a hard time. His own disciples were having a hard time with it. And they even went back and forth where they'd be like super faithful. And then next thing you know, Peter's like chopping ears off, right? I mean, it's like one time he's hearing a sermon from Jesus about loving your enemies and now he's like wanting to defend. So even they are wrestling. You see the struggle because they're growing up under this Roman oppression. They're growing up with all of their values being saying, with, with, with just being tolerated and saying you can do those things within a certain context but you shouldn't bother our rhythms and our systems because ours are more important than yours and that's the day and time they're living. So the reactions and the things they say Man, we have to think about those things when we read the New Testament, because it helps us to understand what these people were going through. But Jesus was dismantling that. And the only rituals that Jesus instituted were communion and baptism, which neither one of those earn us salvation, but are rather an act of obedience and love and worship. It's something that we do because we're being obedient to follow him. And it's that step that he's called us to. And so he's not instituting a bunch of rules and rights and religion for us to follow. Amen. He's wanting us to be known as his disciples by the love that we have for one another, as scripture says, James chapter one and verse 26, James writes, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. He says, if you think you're religious and you're not bridling your tongue, you're deceiving your heart. So you can just talk a good game, but it's really your actions that are going to show if you really mean what you say. It's not just in the inspiration. It's not just in the understanding. It's in the application that we are followers of Jesus. Amen? It's in handing someone polka dotted gloves, right? And them going and working and serving alongside you in in ministry. It's us actually saying yes to greater things, more eternal things. It's us living our lives with an eternal priority and actually doing those things, not just talking about it, but actually obeying, being followers of Jesus. And that is the thing that Jesus' followers got. The New Testament teaches Followers of Jesus to be unified as a church, to be respectful as citizens, to be good neighbors, to be full of grace, all in a culture that's very anti-Christ. Amen. Man, whew, that's not an easy assignment, is it? I wish that someone would tell me how to do that. Oh, wait a minute. I have 27 books of that. <laughs> because maybe you are the only Christian at your job. Maybe you are the only Christian on your college campus. Maybe you are the only Christian at uh, in your family. Maybe as you're thinking about Thanksgiving, as Pastor Barry shared earlier, you're going, "Oh man, I'm gonna have to hang out with those people. They're not even believers. How do I do that?" That's okay. God's got you. The New Testament will help you with that. As you read through the New Testament, these people had to be in the face of a very anti-Christ climate. And not everyone loved the fact that they were around. Not everybody welcomed their message. But yet, we're told how to live among the people who do not believe, as well as we're told how to live among the people who do believe, which sometimes can be as equal or greater challenge than living amongst those who don't believe. Because we don't always get this love and unity thing right, do we, church? I don't always get it right. I mean, maybe some of you do. I don't know, but I certainly don't. I miss it man, I, get, I, I, I fail, I struggle at times, but yet I learn how to live according to this gospel message that Jesus has changed me and he's continually changing me as I submit and trust in his goodness and not trusting in my goodness, not trusting in my effort, not trusting for my own righteousness to come through another source, but no, through Christ alone, amen church? You see, the early church wasn't jockeying for position or influence to try to change the culture to follow Jesus through politics or even to make their lives easier as Christians. Because, man, you sure would think that they would want to make their lives easier because life sure did seem tough. But you never read that. You never read that. You can read the whole New Testament. You never see them making some sort of plan or putting some sort of priority on trying to make their life more comfortable. No, they chose rather to suffer as unto Christ in the middle of the challenges that they faced. And any challenge that they encountered in their day as a result of the climate of their day, they met with counting it as suffering as unto Christ. They would pray to be counted worthy to suffer as Christ suffered. And they were able to continue to keep their faith in Christ through their suffering. You see, you never see that. They they submitted and... They did what God called them to do and they wouldn't allow themselves, of course, to submit to the point of sin or compromise because they still were serving Jesus and that cost a lot of them ultimately their lives. But at the same time, they're reminded of the cost. They're told that when they suffer, that they're not alone. They're told to stay devoted to God and stay connected to each other in Christ-centered community. They're told that eventually they're going to overcome and that even death no longer has victory, so they shouldn't be afraid. They shouldn't be afraid of death or being threatened. That being comfortable as a Christian should not be their goal, but rather to serve Christ. And those moments of comfort, thank God for those. Those are great. You and I live in a culture of comfort for the most part compared to what these folks had to go through. And at the same time, comfort wasn't their goal. Sometimes I believe that we get our eyes off of Jesus and get our eyes onto our comfort and we want Jesus just to make us comfortable and Jesus never said, you know what, follow me, it's going to be really cushy and comfortable. I don't I missed that scripture if that's in there because I don't I don't think it's in there. <laughs> Jesus told us of the cost. He told us what the road would look like. He told us to actually consider all of that before saying yes to following him. He said, don't go out and build a tower without counting the cost. He said, then you're going to fall up short and go, oh, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to cost this much. He said, you're supposed to know. You're supposed to think about this, weigh this out. In other words, is Jesus worth it, whatever the cost? Amen, church? Amen. Is Jesus worth it? No matter what it may cost me socially, no matter what it may cost me financially, no matter what it may cost my reputation, is Jesus worth it? And if we believe that he is because he truly is, and we are devote ourselves to him and follow him and obey him. But we should always be reminded of the cost. And remember, and this is a great thing about Sunday morning church. This is why I like the large gathering. It reminds me that I'm not alone. Because I look out and I go, oh, oh yeah, there's a bunch of other weirdos out there too, just like me. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> we can all be weird together, right? Like, we're people who are putting our faith and trust in Jesus when it doesn't make sense culturally when it doesn't make sense, when it's not easy because there's gonna be times where we go through things and when I can look out and I can see a group of people that are devoted to Jesus, that love Jesus and then I can trust that because they love Jesus, they also love me because we're supposed to love one another and then we serve one another, man, we can really link arms and hearts and do some incredible things for the kingdom of God together. Amen? Amen? Amen. This is the priority we should have is that we are living in light of eternity. Now... I want to shift over to some of these writings that the Apostle Paul had because the New Testament shows us how to follow Jesus along with the worth and cost of following him. And Paul wrote these kinds of letters to the church. So if you want to read Paul's letters, you'll find great encouragement to that. But I want you to understand this is is some interesting stuff here. Paul wrote these letters to churches and to individuals so they would know how to grow in Christ. And he also helps them to know how to lead other people to follow Jesus. And he wrote this to the people in the context of his day. And these concepts are very relatable to any Christian of any day. But I want you to understand something, man. When he wrote this stuff, letter writing in those days was very expensive. It was very time consuming. It would have to be hired by and written by a professional writer. And Paul names a couple of those in his letters. When he mentions Tertius and Silas who were with Paul, like they wrote these things down and it was called an enumesis. And so he would write down these things as he was speaking these things. Sometimes he was in prison speaking these things and they're writing them down. Sometimes it was in the comfort of a home that he's speaking and writing these things. Some of them he spoke and they wrote down while under house arrest. And th- these, these letters would take a long time because I think a lot of us have this image, at least I do, growing up in the church of like this old man with a beard and a robe and he's got like a candle and he's got like a, a, a pen with a feather, you know, a little quill pen. He's dipping it in the inkwell and I'm writing to Timothy because they're all, they all speak with British accents. To my Jews, Timothy, my beloved son in the faith because for us in America, British people just sound smarter. I don't know. I'm, we, and, and that's like, like a lot of us, like, like you have to have an accent if you're going to be like a Bible author. You can't sound like you're from Southern Arkansas like me. Like, hey man, hey Timothy, how's it going there, bud? You know, like it's, It just doesn't have, it doesn't have the same impact. You know, It doesn't have the same weight. And so we imagine that's what he's doing, but that wasn't what he was doing. And he and we think he wrote it in like an afternoon or maybe a week or so. It took months to compile these letters, and every word was carefully thought out as he was speaking this and the right and like okay now let, let, let's use this word instead of this word. And everything was intentionally spoken and intentionally written. And then get this: after the letter was finished. They would have whoever the letter carrier was because there was a lot of illiteracy back then. It wasn't a common thing for people to know how to read and write. So he's, he's sending Timothy or sending um, uh, Silas or whoever, he's sending them out to go actually perform this letter as if Paul were saying these words. So Paul would say, emphasize this part. You know, get get loud at this part. Really say this part really strongly. Maybe get softer here because I would have said it this way and, and with this. And they would go perform the letter. So they're not only writing the letter for a long time, but Paul's instructing them how he wants the letter delivered and which parts he wants emphasized and which parts he wants them to, to maybe spend a little time and like give pause for thought. All of this was a part of this process. And so then when that person would go out and then they would gather the church together... This person would say, I have a letter from Paul. And they would open up the parchment and they would begin to read and perform this in the tone that Paul requested that it would be performed in. And these people are gathered together. And and while that's being spoken, there's scribes there. And those scribes are writing down and making copies of this letter so that it can be distributed throughout the kingdom. They just didn't go back to the copy machine and start, you know, hey, could you run me off, you know, 10 copies of these for my friends, you know, in Capernaum? That's not how that worked. They're like handwriting as the scribes are back there working as this person is performing this word so that it can be distributed and circulated amongst the church. And so as we think about this, I want us to think about the cost of following Jesus. I want us to think about these words. These words were not just casually thrown out there. They were spirit led, spirit directed, and they were carefully crafted for the purpose of communicating how we are to live in Christ's likeness and godliness in that age. And then it also translates into our day and age. Amen. Amen. To tell the church how we're supposed to function, to tell us what the priority is. These words were prayed over. These words were talked through in depth. That's what you're reading when you open the Bible. Are you getting this this morning? I want you to love the Bible. I want you to love the words of God. I want you to love these Holy Spirit-led, Holy Spirit-breathed words. And as you have a desire to read, I want that to continue to increase so that we can hear and obey. Amen? Amen. The last style of writing in the New Testament is Revelation or Apocalypse, and everybody freaks out about that. But I will say that Revelation doesn't mean end of the world. That even that word Apocalypse doesn't mean It's the end of the world. That's what Hollywood would have us believe. But actually it means to uncover or reveal. That's that word that's used in this apocalyptic language. This revelation is a prophetic book full of symbolism and it's written from God's perspective of what's really going on in the world. as if God pulled back the curtain to what's actually happening behind the scenes and he's showing his people how to trust him through all of it. This is what I'm seeing from my perspective. These are things that are to come. And here's how you can stay anchored in me and trust me through all of it because he keeps showing his goodness through all of it. So don't be afraid of the book of Revelation because one of the very first things that is written in the book of Revelation is that this is supposed to bring blessing and hope to those who read it. (laughs) So if you're afraid of it, you're missing the point because it literally says in the beginning that you're supposed to be blessed if you read this. So find the blessing in it, find the hope because it was written to a group of persecuted Christians and they were wondering, when's this going to end? And Jesus said, I'll show you when it's going to end. I'll teach you how it's going to end and I'll teach you how I'm going to be faithful through it all. And he's letting them know these things. You see, when you read the New Testament with an eternal lens and an eternal priority, it reinforces the original interpretation and it impacts your application. That's our big idea for today, church, is that when we read it with that eternal lens, with an eternal priority it reinforces the original interpretation and impacts our application we should anchor our reading in that and we study the scriptures not to gain some special secret knowledge but rather in order for our lives to be confronted challenged and transformed amen some people are like oh let me find something no one else has ever found before good luck this book has been studied and read more than any other book and taught from more than any other book ever known to man. It has survived more burnings, more bannings than any other book ever written in human history. It's sold more copies and been printed more and been translated more than any other book in human history. God will see his word move forward. Amen. He will see his word continue. It's amazing if you look at all of the things that have come against the word of God and how it's continued to persevere and how we have this gift today. So it's not for us to gain some special secret knowledge. No, instead it's for our lives to be confronted. So is, are the scriptures confronting you? Are they challenging you? And are they transforming you? Because the Holy Scripture, listen, it can, have one, it can only have one meaning, but it has different applications. So, so yes, what did the Holy Spirit say to those back then? But what is God using it to call you to today? What is he asking you to do? And if you're new to reading the Bible, if you're like, man, I've never read the Bible before, I want you to start with John or Mark in the New Testament. I think one of those would be a great place to start. Mark is shorter. Um, and so maybe that would be something that's a little bit more abbreviated, but John's a little bit more detailed. So if you're a detailed person, you know, go, read, go read a little bit more about the story in John. If you're just getting started, John, Mark, that'd be a great place to start in the New Testament. If you've been a Christian for years, but you're like, man, I would call myself a Christian, but I don't feel like I'm very proficient in reading the scripture. Then I would recommend that you start at Acts or or Romans and that you would learn what the early church was learning and going through, because I believe that'd be a great place for you to start because you probably know a lot about Jesus and I want you to engage with what God's calling you to do. So maybe Acts of Romans would be a good place for you to start. If you have been faithfully reading your Bible for years, have you been reading it in context? So I would encourage you, if you've been faithfully reading your Bible, have you just been going through the rhythms of a Bible reading plan? But have you not considered the context? I want to encourage you, if that's you, to be a person who really takes time and learns a little bit more of the backstory. Get a good study Bible. You know my favorite CSV study Bible. I want you to gain a greater appreciation and understanding of the context. I think that would really help you. If you are someone who has been faithfully diving into the scripture and you've been growing in that, then I would love to encourage you. Are you teaching it someone else? Are you making disciples along the way? Are you sowing into other people? Um, if you're looking for a good book, <clears throat> I'm not going to put it up here today for you all to come out and look at, but it's called... <laughs> New Testament History by F.F. F. Bruce. The name of it's New Testament History. It's a shorter read, but it'll help you get some context around reading the New Testament. And So the more important question for me is, are you gonna be a doer of the word? Are you making disciples? And are you inviting people to come alongside you? No matter what stage you are at in this journey. If you're newer to the Bible, I can't teach anybody. I can't disciple anybody. Yeah, you can invite them to go on this journey with you and learn more about God together. Pursue him together. Find someone that's a little further ahead than you and and, and ask your questions. But but don't stop asking and inviting someone to come alongside you just because you're newer to this. Because I believe that God can work with you and through you right where you're at. Amen, church? Are you inviting your kids? Are you inviting your grandkids? Are you inviting your friends, your nieces, your nephews? Are you inviting them into this conversation? Are you encouraging them to be a part of this with you? Because here's, here's the thing, church, and this is, this is it as I'm, as I'm wrapping up. I, I know we've gone a little over. This is the big question. How are we gonna impact the next generation and hand them a strong foundation if we don't share this with them? It's not just gonna happen because we take them to church. It's not gonna happen just because you enroll them in a Christian school. It's not gonna happen because you bring them to children's church and youth group. It's not gonna happen because they join a Christian fraternity or sorority in college. No, it's gonna happen because someone intentionally began to pass them an intentional torch. All those things are important. Those are supplemental, they're great. But we can't allow ourselves to just think that just exposing people to these environments is gonna create a mature disciple. It's gonna take us pursuing God, ourselves, amen? It's gonna take us growing in the word, ourselves, So we have the Bible and we have the Holy Spirit. So let's do this. It's time to apply the things we're learning. So Lord, help us do this. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us in this. Lead us and guide us into all truth. Help us to properly apply it. Help us to hunger and thirst after righteousness and after knowing you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in online. Our in-person service times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. every Sunday. To learn more about BCC, visit us at BettendorfCC.com. Have a great day.